Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Michael Osman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. Michael is also an author in Governing by Design, Architecture, Economy, and Politics in the 20th Century and a founding member of the Collaborative Aggregate, a group of 13 historians interpreting architecture from multidisciplinarian perspectives. For more information, feel free to visit www.aud.ucla.edu. That's www.aud.ucla.edu. Hello, Michael. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect radio show today. Hi, Tom. It's uh, great for you to have me. I'm, I'm really thankful. Oh, we're really excited to have you on your show. M- Michael, if you will, Share with us some early inspirations as far back as you can recall, even if you, if you have to go into your you know, early childhood, of how you are where you are now and looking back as to, you know what, these are kind of epiphanies or some breakthrough moments that you realize, you know, I really do love architecture and, and what's involved, if, if you will. You know, we always construct our own narratives of our uh, lives after the fact, but where <laughs> yeah. I grew up... Uh, might have some bearing on why I chose to study architecture. I grew up in New York City on an island in the East River called Roosevelt Island. It used to be called Welfare Island and Blackwell Island before that. It's a, it's a peculiar location in the city because it is mostly a planned community, planned from the beginning of the 1970s as New York was going through a kind of financial crisis. Sure. The island was seen as a kind of micro-community, one that could sort of deliver to the city a new version of itself. And there was a competition held, actually quite a prominent one, among architects, international group of architects in the 1970s who who participated in it. And I grew up on that island. (laughs) And... uh, it's a big and in some in three of the different housing developments because my family just moved from one side of the island to another side of the island and experiencing those parts of New York a uh, very particular kind of modernism uh, was probably very formative in my idea of what architecture was 
And then I would say that I didn't think I'd be an architect, okay. but I, I was always interested in it. I didn't think I'd be an architect. And I went to college in Chicago, and I, um, I studied actually science, biology, chemistry, um, things like this, thinking perhaps I'd do medical school or become a scientist <laughs> until I decided um, actually I wanted to, to be a historian and I wanted to study history. And, of course, the history that I decided to study was the history of architecture. So that's oh, yeah. more or less how I I came upon architecture as a topic of interest. I even then studied to be a professional architect, but I decided at the end of it that I'd prefer to, to do history. Excellent, excellent. So what did that make you feel like just with the architecture, and even being in Chicago with the, the great architecture in Chicago, did that kind of uh, solidify or validate this is a field that you definitely want to uh, immerse yourself in? Mm-hmm. I did uh, in college study Chicago architecture. I didn't study the famous skyscrapers from the late 19th century. I've done that kind of stuff actually more recently. But what I studied was the park system that was designed originally by Frederick Law Olmsted. Yeah, Olmsted, um, Stanford. Yeah, uh, the World Columbian Exhibition was located in a park that he designed in the south side of Chicago where the University of Chicago is now located around the Midway Plaisance, uh, Jackson Park, and Washington Park. And I studied that park system as a kind of urban element uh, within the development of Chicago at the end of the 19th century. So, uh, yeah, Chicago architecture and landscape architecture were very formative. And, in fact, one of the pieces of architecture that I studied along that development, the park development, was the mid the Midway Gardens that were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, we want to capture the essence as much as we can of that early inspiration because uh, uh, we we found that with uh, a lot of architects, those in architecture and those in design, it's something, it gives them a a feeling inside. What was it with you that you said, wow, this is just... amazing or oh boy I can't wait to really get into this and is there no end to being as fascinated and enthralled with architecture at that point in your life yeah so as a historian I was primarily interested in American history and I was really interested in the way in which the cities that we live in in the United States uh, are markers of the way in which American culture more generally uh, sort of makes itself physically known to us. Okay, yeah. Um, so as a New Yorker living in Chicago, I think I felt uh, somewhat alienated um, by the Chicago urbanism. I was very interested in what was so different about the New York uh, physical, the physical fabric of New York as a city and, and its relationship to, in particular, I was very interested in race and the way in which race in the 19th and 20th century played out in the New York context and the sort of integration or segregation of races in that city um, in relationship to the way in which race was handled in Chicago. And I actually found that there were studies done very early on in the 20th century as to whether or not the parks were buffer zones between not just racial sort of communities, but also class-based communities. Is that right? Yeah, so that was actually my BA thesis, was a study in how parks became both intended and unintended buffers between 
various populations of, the, of Chicago, um, you can translate that idea into other cities as well. But uh, there's an amazing intentionality built into the Chicago park system where once that became a uh, sort of observable fact, it was used by police and various other urban entities to their benefit. Oh, well, like how, how yeah, their, I, their benefit is in just segregate by <laughs> just by the geography or by the by design? Yeah, so police would use the parks as um, boundaries that they would uh, help communities by telling them, well, you can go as far as this, but don't go beyond that because that would be unsafe for you. And in a way, kind of producing a kind of soft form of uh, segregation, not a, not a legal form of segregation, but a kind of uh, a way that racial and ethnic and class-based communities could identify themselves. And and very much a a kind of concept of community in our country is based on those kinds of categories that were developed at the end of the 19th century, at least also within the social sciences. So even at the University of Chicago, where I was studying at the end of the 20th century, by the end of the 19th century, issues of the ghetto and the idea of a kind of racial or ethnic uh, communities was something that the sociologists of the so-called Chicago School were studying. So I was very interested in how the city itself was emblematic of that and how, in a way, even though there was a desire for that kind of segregation, that in fact the things still mixed and 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 there was always a kind of heterogeneous melting pot happening, um, even though the, these categories themselves were things that people were interested in and pursuing and studying. Oh, so by design, do you also feel that the, you said the social sciences that by design could design also affect behavior? Well, that they believed that. Uh, they believed it so strongly that there was a kind of behavioralism. There was an idea that you could, and this became far, far more powerful in architectural education, I would say, in the middle of the 20th century, when the social sciences were folded into architecture training. Uh, there was an idea that how people lived in architecture would be defined and and inflected by the forms and the colors and the light of the architecture. It's a very uh, politically difficult place to occupy, I think, in architecture, and, and fewer and fewer architecture schools actually inter- entertain that as part of their pedagogy. But there was definitely a belief in that in the in the 50s and 60s, all the way maybe even through the 70s when Roosevelt Island was being designed, that uh, architecture could, in fact, change the way people behaved. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, so do other um, architects and uh, designers ever call on you to uh, better understand that? I would basically argue that to them, those who do approach me about that, that that they should really think not so much about the way they can use their architecture to make people into the kinds of people they want to be or they want them to be, which would be a very modernist idea about trying to use architecture to spread a kind of ideological view of the world, but really try and help using architecture to make 
people into the people they want to be. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's very important as an architect, as a professional architect, to listen very carefully, not just to your teachers and the lessons that they gave you, not just to your clients and the desires that they have, but also to the sort of regulatory bodies and to the builders and to all of the constituencies that make up um, a good architectural project. Um, the best architecture that we have in the United States, but probably internationally, are instances in which an architect and all of the people involved in making that project were in some form or other invested in its success. When you see a conflict between the state um, and the architect or between the architect and their client or between the architect and other architects, you often you see that reflected in the way in which the building either is used or isn't used. So some of the greatest pieces of architecture, for example, I'm thinking of uh, Robert Venturi's house for his mother, the Vanna Venturi house, has been in constant use since its design in the mid-60s, once by Vanna, and then by Tom Hughes, who was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and then various other occupants after that. So I'm, I'm just thinking about the greatest pieces of architecture are those that respond in multiple ways to multiple constituencies. Um, I, I don't know very much about that house, but I'm just using it as an example yeah. of something that I think greatly succeeded. Yeah, there's a uh, I, a couple of years ago I read an article and I I don't know if that was this was the topic of the article but they had I placed a a statue a large statue in the street it was a a crime ridden type place and they pl- placed a statue of a Buddha there and with flowers and just the, the landscape around the Buddha and they found that that statue it, it never became graffitied or vandalized and the, mm. the crime actually went down in that area even though I don't think mm-hmm. it was a particularly a Buddhist area. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your thought might be that and I'm trying to connect the, the architecture and behavior to icons or or just a you know a, a perceived peaceful presentation and what you're I'm curious your thoughts on that right I, I think it's really important for communities to have buy-in and buy-in, agency okay. over the physical their physical environment. Uh, you know, everybody wants clean streets and good air and thing, and healthy mm-hmm. living for their families. Everybody wants also a place for their kids to play and people to get together and have a good time. And and in order to have that, you you need you need the architecture and the urbanism to reflect your values. At, at the same time, you know, you need some kind of public entity. I think whether whether you think of that as the whoever it was the that sponsored the space to allow for that Buddha to show up, whoever was cleaning that area and so forth, sort of civil society can only exist in so far as we have those public entities preserving and maintaining and loving and cherishing the communities that they sponsor. So I. I think that that's a great example, uh, but I don't. I wouldn't think that it's just the fact that it's a Buddha. I think that it's it's something about the way in which people took care. Okay, um, and I think that's really important about building community. This is excellent. You're listening to the Modern Architect. 
KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Imagine if you couldn't hear us right now or enjoy KZSU's music or public affairs programs. Disabling hearing loss affects 48 million Americans and more than 360 million people worldwide. Yet many do not have access to hearing devices. Starkey Hearing Foundation brings understanding among people through hearing care. The foundation gives away more than 175 hearing aids every year. To meet its goals, it needs generous donations from people like you. If you're interested in learning more, visit StarkeyHearingFoundation.org. We're talking today with Michael Osman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. For more information, feel free to visit www.aud.ucla.edu. That is www.aud.ucla.edu. Michael, I'd love to reflect your values. Can you touch on that for our audience a bit more, like the architecture that can touch on your values? Yeah. You know, in my various writing projects since joining the faculty here at UCLA, I think that values become this very evanescent thing, something that we think is um, very hard to capture in a physical space, things that are too too abstract often as concepts to make people get together. But my historical project has been also to show that there are values that are very practical and very physical in the way in which they bring people together. So, for example, one of my one of the topics that I did research on for the book that came out this year, it's called The Visible Hand uh, Regulation in Architecture in America, is about the cold storage facilities that existed at the end of the, or were put into place at the end of the 19th century in various okay. cities around the United States. And in and this also the same essay is, or a similar version of that essay is in Governing by Design as you as you yes. in the book. That system of preserving perishable produce had so many different constituencies invested in its success. On the one hand, we have the those who bought and sold perishable produce, the commission merchants, who wanted their apples and their onions and their mm-hmm. butter yeah. to pre- be preserved from one season to the next. And so their investment in that was, let's say, a kind of uh, investment in the commodity and, and its preservation. Then you have the urban sort of constituencies. They want to be able to eat an apple or an onion outside of its immediate growth and harvesting patterns. So you have a kind of desire on the part of the urban constituency that they want to be able to consume those products. So it's not just a monetary investment. It's also an idea that you should be able to have an apple in the springtime, not just in the fall. Uh, um, And you... Then you see the result of that, that in many other constituencies, architects having an investment in being able to produce monumental architecture that, per, that persuades people that cold storage is a great facility, all of these kinds of constituencies. And you see the result of that is a massive investment in building these pieces of infrastructure in the center of cities in, in order to produce a kind of new idea about the way in which we are 
in the way in which we live together, and in the way in which we are fundamentally modern. And, and that value of, of bringing our cities and our cultures and our families into a kind of modern existence was a shared value at the end of the 19th century. And what's amazing okay. is to see how different those things played out in different places. Yeah, so I like that you said a shared value. That's one, obviously, one example of that shared value. What have you seen recently that is is similar or alike, or maybe even a little even evolved from even that currently? Uh huh. I think about the. Uh, I, I worry a lot about that. The question about what are the kinds of institutions that we all collectively believe in, uh, because you can think all through the 20th cent- 19th and 20th century about things like public libraries, right, okay, where yeah. people went to get knowledge. These are the kinds of institutions we- many, many people believed in. The school, right, the elementary school or the high school is places where we educated our children or the public university. These kinds of institutions, I think, are really amazing. Uh, or even the museum, you know, mm-hmm. you think about nice. great institutions like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which as a kid growing up in New York, I would visit with my family. And um, How'd you feel uh, about that, Michael, when you were there yeah. as a kid? seen that. Oh, for me, you know, going into the Temple of Dender and uh, escaping from New York into a kind of air-conditioned version of of Egypt (laughs) was quite an amazing experience. And as a young boy, I remember as if it was yesterday, uh, walking through the exhibit with all the various sarcophagi and mummies and things like this yeah. as an, an immense contribution to my growing up and being interested in sort of the longest history of, of human culture from what, I mean, were thousands and yeah. thousands of years ago, you know, and being able to see these bodies uh, wrapped up, you know, <laughs> was really quite, was really quite illuminating. I know not everybody has those uh, access to that, and to me, that is something that uh, would be wonderful to sort of keep building and keep investing in as a culture, making more and more people see the thousands and thousands and years of years of culture that we've been accumulating and that we shouldn't forget all the lessons that that those cultures have to tell us. Yeah, I like that you use the word access to. They didn't have the mm-hmm. access, so they may not have been as inspired or may not have had such an immense positive impact in their, their lives, but at some level, everyone is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I, I yeah. like that when you say access, how how do you see that those sort of th- those experiences are either not or being accessed by everyone or as many people as possible? Right. Well, for me as a teacher, I have for the last ten years taught a class here, the largest class that we offer in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design is called Introduction to Architectural Studies. And I teach that class to anybody who would like to take it from the UCLA campus, students from civil engineering and from business and from literature and whatever other fields come to hear one or two things about architecture over the course of 10 weeks. 
Yeah, and I've had the opportunity to talk to them about the way that the Egyptian sculptors carved the sphinxes and things like that. Um, What's their response? <laughs> I mean, they must just be overwhelmed. This is I, I'm, I like want to go to your class. Just hearing. Yeah, I, mean, I wish you could. I'm, in fact, you're invited. Um, Thank you. But, Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I can't really always assess what the response is. It, maybe sometimes it does feel a little too vast. You know that as long as there were humans on this planet, and we don't really know how to decide when that moment began, because there is no real origin point, the, there has been something that you might be able to point to as architecture. There's some evidence that it existed. And, and then there's a whole set of mythologies about what that must have meant to the humans, to, of the sort of original, yeah. <laughs> if you could say so, to the sort of humans who lived on the planet so long before us that we can't even imagine that kind of existence. So we have to create these kinds of mythologies to produce narratives where there isn't history, right? Where there, where there wasn't writing, uh, where there wasn't language, at least not language that we know of. So all of those things are topics that I like to bring up because, you know, we might be able to say that insofar as there is language or has been language, there's always been also a metaphor of architecture built into that language. You know, I'm not, it wasn't my idea to say that. Architects, architects and architectural historians and architectural theorists have been saying things like that for some number of years. But yeah, it's been a challenge and, and a great opportunity to be able to bring, you know, hundreds and hundreds of undergraduates into that. Other than that, I have to always also think about the professional architects that we teach here and the and, and the PhDs who are who are going to be producing new knowledge as well. So that's been, been fun. Yeah. 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 You know, I love that. Yeah. What about yeah, your experience in mythology? What role does architecture play in mythology? I never thought of that until you were uh, bringing this up. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there's a in the middle of the 18th century, there was a French Jesuit priest called Marc-Antoine Loger. Every, every architectural historian and every architect has heard the story of the primitive hut. And, and there's an idea that Loger, he was brilliant in his oratory. He okay, gave apparently perfect. very, uh, what do you call these? Uh, he was like a firebrand. He would like give these incredible sermons. And one of them was written down. We don't know if it was probably never made a kind of oral presentation, but it was an essay called the Essay on Architecture, where he tells the story of the first human who is uh, moving from uh, lawn, kind of grassy field near a river, uh, has to leave because the sun scorches their body into the forest to sort of receive the sort of I don't know, the, the feeling of comfort of, of shadow, and yes. then the rains come down, so he has to seek yet more cover in the cave, and then realizes some at some point while trying to escape the rain in the cave that if he could take the best qualities of the cave and the best qualities of the forest and combine them, what he would do is produce a little hut. Um, so he produces the first kind of primitive hut, which takes the sort of the capacity of the of the cave to keep him dry and the capacity of the forest to to keep him out of the sun and he combines that into this new unity um anyway that's that's a story that's a myth we it's clearly not true there's no historical evidence of its existence <laughs> no human ever 
did that as far as we know. I mean, yeah, yeah. But we can imagine it and we can imagine that as being the basis, like essential basis for all architecture yet to come and all architecture that had existed up until that point. So what an amazing mythology. I mean, also built up out of so much bizarre. How could you ever imagine that there's an individual living alone yeah, <laughs> in I know. the world? Yeah. So you can see immediately it's false. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, that I think is a fascinating thing. This is terrific, Michael. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Native American, the Native American Health Center is a nonprofit organization that has served the Bay Area Native population since 1972. Clinics in Oakland, Richmond, Alameda, and San Francisco offer comprehensive services to improve the health and well-being of American Indians, Alaska Natives, and, res- and residents of the surrounding communities. Services may be available with or without health insurance. To learn more or to make an appointment at a nearby clinic, visit www.nativehealth.org. We're talking today with Michael Osman, Assistant professor in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. For more information, feel free to visit www.aud.ucla.edu. That's aud.ucla.edu. Michael, Darlene has a question for you, and I think it's uh, very interesting. So please, Darlene, share. Oh, yes. I was wondering what you have found about design and changes over time and how it affects how people interact and healthy communities, how they form. So I know design just can set the tone for certain types of interactions. I guess I'm thinking about the designs for universities, for Mm -hmm. city centers Mm -hmm. and plazas, public spaces. I just wanted to hear about (laughs) more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, the group. Is that you're referring to aggregate? So the group has has had now a, a longish life, like I don't know, some, somewhere near 15 years, and I'm I'm so impressed actually with the different ways in which people understand that word design, because on the one hand, design should mean something like let's say the aesthetic, uh, our aesthetic appreciation of of the things we make, right? But design has now taken on a whole other set of criteria, right? Because we now design, there are design molecules, and, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we design software, <laughs> we design all kinds of things that, in a way, you can think of it as a metaphor, but maybe it's quite literal. Maybe what I think I've discovered in this in this group is that you can think about design as existing uh, outside of the realm of the perceptible. Really? I think that actually, yeah, I think that for us is, is it's not just, it's not, we're not just focused on the, on those limits, but we're interested in, I think as a group, tying together our perceptible visual aesthetic environment with also those imperceptible infrastructural molecular elements. So I'm thinking about the work of one of our one of my colleagues, John Harwood, written a brilliant book called The Interface on Computer Computers and uh, Design um, at Mid Century. And I'm just thinking about his idea about design as something that was to remove discomfort 
Interesting. <laughs> where the yeah, the computer right. industry as it, it at its inception was uh, hiring designers to make the computers into and the computer system into a place that could also incorporate the human body, um, that could, uh, without discomfort, as they defined it, produce a kind of ergonomic situation. And, and you can see in his beautiful analysis of the ways in which computers were designed over the course of the history of IBM, which is the company he studied, how that process goes about. So on the one hand, yeah, you have design that uh, like the Buddha, who uh, sort of creates a kind of center for a community, uh, or a park, which creates a boundary around a community or something like that. But you also have these objects, you know, computers or cell phones, or um, I'm thinking of the watch I wear, which my grandfather left for me oh, as a designed right. object, you know, a gold watch that I wear every day. You know, these are things that we remember our our parents and grandparents by. It's also the things through which we communicate. It's also the things that we run into and hopefully don't bump into too too much as we're walking around our cities and our, our towns. Yeah, your, uh, your emphasis on buildings and cities of the United States, just say within the last uh, three or five years, Michael, how do you feel it, it has evolved? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we've had an incredible change in the ways in which uh, our cities and our buildings are being made. So for me, I'm, I'm really interested in the processes by which we uh, translate our ideas into built realities. That, that's the stuff okay. I'm doing research on now. So I've been looking at the history of the architecture profession and the kind of paperwork that's been used since the middle of the 19th century up until so recently as software packages called Revit, which are made by Autodesk in yes. the Bay Area by you guys. Yeah. <laughs> How have these processes of what you might call clerical labor transform the ways in which we deliver our designs to our cities and to our towns and to our rural countrysides? Like, how... How has that process changed over time? And I find it really amazing to see that, in fact, the paperwork is not going to go away. <laughs> no. You know, the digitalization of everything, the computerization of our streams of thought uh, yeah. doesn't make things any easier. No, sure. uh, it makes things just maybe more and more explicit. And therefore, the decisions that we make and the kinds, uh, Darlene, you talked about the, the healthiness of our environment. Consider now that every element of a building that we make today can be measured as something that has some embodied energy. That is to say, it uh, took some amount of energy to produce. Well, we can now understand how much energy has been used in order to not just build a building, mm -hmm. but also all the elements that that building is composed of. So we can even have a kind of, not just a carbon footprint of the building as it's being kind of uh, playing into its environment through its performance, but also how it's sort of 
historical, all the history of all of its elements have composed a kind of other kind of carbon footprint of embodied energy. These kinds of things, I think, are really fascinating. And really, over the last three to five years, we can really begin to get our head around it. So the word sustainability is a kind of catch-all for this. But it should really be more specific. We should really be thinking about energy and we should think about labor and how we make our buildings, safety, health, all of these which have become a kind of elements within the discourse on sustainability are in themselves fascinating uh, topics which I think we should be more and more attuned to in the design community but also in the sort of public discourse. For sure, for sure. Uh, Michael, are you uh, aware of, maybe you even know, um, Mayor Garcetti is uh, uh, now what's uh, Chief Design Officer and Christopher uh, uh, Hawthorne, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, met, I met Chris when I first moved to Los Angeles. He was then the L.A. The Times, Times yeah. critic on architecture and one of the few remaining architecture critics working for a major American newspaper, uh, a brilliant writer and, and an astute uh, observer of the built environment in Southern California. Yeah, what's your um, thoughts on the, the changes that that does? I think there's a, a huge right. I went. I went to the reception yesterday to sort of congratulate him. Garcetti uh, put together a reception at the, actually at the Los Angeles Public Library, one of those great civic institutions that I was mentioning earlier, to sort of congratulate Chris Hawthorne on, on this new job. I think this is going to be a terrific opportunity for the city. And the mayor at the reception uh, identified uh, Hawthorne as one of the leaders in thinking forward for the next decade as Los Angeles is going to prepare itself for the 2028 Olympics. So I think that this is going to be a really amazing opportunity for the city to think about how it wants to how we as a as a collective want our built environment to look how we want it to perform uh how we want communities and and the architects uh, who build for them to interact and so i think it's going to be an amazing test and also for for our civic and municipal uh institutions but also it's going to be a really great opportunity yeah, how do you see? Um, I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm much I'm biased to say the least, and a huge advocate of that that sort of relationship between the mayoral or or leadership of a city to actually have mm-hmm. someone who's has a strong architecture bent to them in every city. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll ever yeah. happen, but I'm just I'm curious to hear your take on if a city did have someone of that uh, of that mm-hmm. ex- influence. Well, you know, what I'm thinking about right now is how uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, it wouldn't have been even uh, that surprising that Nehru, then, no. <laughs> you know, sort of the political the, uh, and the political elite generally, I would say, of, of post-colonial India would have engaged architects in the construction of a kind of post-colonial identity for India, you know, Chandigarh, what have you. I mean, we can imagine entirely new cities having been, not imagine, we can visit the cities that these these architects built. And to think that for so long, the American municipal and local governments haven't been empowered to think about the design of their cities as a, as a self-conscious discourse, a 
public discourse and a a community-based sort of opportunity for making a better environment for our our cities is actually is actually quite striking and an unusual thing. So I I, I want to kind of just say historically speaking, this probably okay. isn't entirely new. But for as far as I can see in the history of Los Angeles, this is really a really big step forward. And I think you know. The idea had come, according to Garcetti in his speech yesterday, had come from visiting actually New Zealand in the city of Auckland Uh that had a chief design officer there. And, um, you know, they are very concerned with sort of environmental performance and things like this. So I think that you're right. It it shouldn't be, uh, this shouldn't be just left for a few cities uh, who that are more concerned with design or something like this but it should it's it, it ought to be the kind of thing that design is, is a public discourse and you know and we have the words and the language and the erudition to be able to make architecture into that kind of a public forum so i agree with you um it's i don't think this is i think you and i have the same bias yeah, yeah, that's for sure that's for sure this is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. Drivers, turn off your idling engines. Every day, millions of parked vehicles idle needlessly, sometimes for hours. An idling car releases the same pollutants as a moving car and in 10 minutes adds one pound of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, along with other pollutants linked to human illnesses such as asthma, bronchitis, and cancer. Contrary to popular belief, restarting your engine does not burn more fuel than leaving it idling, and warming it up for more than 30 seconds actually harms it. Turn off your idling engine if you need to wait more than 10 seconds. Save gas, money, and the air we breathe. For more information, contact the Environmental Defense Fund at edf.org. We're talking today with Michael Osman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. For more information, you can visit www.aud.ucla.edu. That's www.aud.ucla.edu. Michael, that was a great segue before we went to our station break. What is your vision for architecture in cities? I mean, I, I mean, that's a really general, broad question, but just yeah, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure our audience would love to hear, you know, what your vision is. Is it it, Mm -hmm. what it is? Well, I really think that we should begin to think about architecture as a form of advocacy, which is to say that we often think of architecture from the point of view of what it delivers to us as a kind of product, a building, or um, an interior, a design, or Mm -hmm. any number of other things. But from our last conversation, I think that it's important for us, especially those of us who um, like me, who are teaching the next generation of, of future architects, to also understand how to use the language that we now have developed about our built environment to advocate for architecture as a mode for producing a kind of new public encounter. Uh, not just one that I think helps you know, edify which is, let's say, the old idea that architecture is a kind of didactic or kind of educational tool, yeah. like, like the Temple of Dender or something yeah. like this. But also that architecture is a service. It's, a, it's an infrastructure. It's a tool for, for people to use in their everyday life. 
that architecture is both the rarefied art of monumental construction and civic pride, but it is also, and this is, I guess, my bias, it is also those mundane things that we pass by and don't remember paving on our sidewalk. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't exclude that as part of the purview of architecture. Oh, I love Curb that. cuts, yeah. right? ADA ramps, mechanical systems, you know, window mullions. Yeah. So everything should be, in the, our built environment, should be able to be partly part of our form of advocacy to make for the kind of environment that we as a collective want to exist in. I think if we do that, not only will architecture become, I think, a more a topic which more people can find interest in, but like we were saying about the situation under Mayor Garcetti, it will become something more important to the sort of municipal and political institutions that we use to guide our cities and our states and our nation. So I think that's a really important part of how I teach mm -hmm. is to think about architecture's effect in the most expanded in its most expanded definition and not to forget its most narrow, most specific and most amazing contributions of art for the last thousands and thousands of years. I love that. So literally, Michael, you've gone back as far as you can go back and then you, you're you here today and you're looking yeah. about us. How about looking, I mean, you, you shared with us, but even looking forward uh, a thousand years. I mean, that's okay, a, real a stretch. years from now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a real well, stretch, but really, yeah. um, I think you can do it. You definitely have the, the yeah, mental I, bandwidth. Yeah, I've, I've thought about it, you yeah. know. Okay. I, I do worry about what we're doing to our planet. I think about it a lot. I, it's, it's not something that I go to sleep worrying about and wake up worrying about exactly, but it is something that occurs to me every time I turn the ignition on my car. Uh, every time I let it idle, <laughs> yeah, thanks um, for that promo. I think about it every time I get on my bike. You know, I think about it in a in a way that I I, I realize this is not just good for me, but it's better for everybody that I'm on my yeah. bike right now. <laughs> and a thousand years out, I do hope that that has been a more collective kind of view of, of how we exist on our planet. And architecture, I do hope, also feels similarly. And also that it's not just what we contribute to our environment through greenhouse gases, but what we contribute as a kind of ethical imperative. You know, how, how do we think about the sort of inclusiveness of the institutions and how do we express that in the architecture that we're making for them? How do we also criticize the institutions that we have now and the history that they've come from? So I think it would be really great. So, for example, I think it would be really great for institutions like the museums, the educational institutions like universities, and municipal institutions like mayoral uh, mm -hmm. offices and various others to become more integrated. I think if in a thousand years out, we had a university of the city <laughs> where uh, there was a place you could go to learn about the city, to ex how to exist within the city, how to act within the city, and how to become an advocate for the city as a part of the globe, as, a, as an inextricable 
part of the planet that we will all pitch into, I think that would that would be something that I'd be really excited about. I don't know if it's going to take a thousand years. Hopefully, it only take a couple a couple decades. But if we can become if we can become more integrative in the kinds of ways that we think, this isn't to talk about interdisciplinarity. This is to talk about the actual effects that knowledge has on the way we live. I really hope that a thousand years out we won't be using screens anymore to to transmit information from from one person to to another but we'll have a kind of more collective embodiment of that in civic institutions so you know the 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 story that we're hearing more and more is that those great civic institutions that were established in the in the 18th and 19th centuries are eroding I want to believe that there is an as a future where we're reconfiguring them now for something that we can all buy into in a much more I don't know uh, yes. in a way that makes us feel much more invested in the way and and in, in, in the way in which we live in the planet. Oh, Michael, that was very Buddha-like. <laughs> Just you know, a great descri- description. I mean, I could have looked on a Siddhartha himself, and the, the, that was an excellent description, which will segue into you know, our, our closing. I'd love to hear your take on this. And you elaborated very eloquently and very, uh, very heartfelt, and we really appreciate that. And so we'll, we'll close with this quote, and your, your take on this is, The mother art is architecture. Without an architecture of our own, we have no soul of our own civilization. Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. Your take. Well, I, I would take the own out of that. Okay. I don't believe that we're going to have an architecture of our own. I think that we should begin to thinking about architecture not as something we own, not as a, a reflection of, of, our, of our property, but or out of our nation. Uh, here I quibble with the master of American architecture in the 20th century. Excellent. Yeah. I think it's I think it's important to to think about architecture as something is not a reflection of those kinds of boundaries, but as something that collects and integrates and is a more as an opportunity for producing greater diversity and heterogeneity, an opportunity for producing more polyglot. M- strangeness and integrating technology with human life and integrating, you know, municipal politics with national politics, integrating that if we can think of not an architecture of our own, but an architecture for us, right, that Mm. serves us, Mm -hmm. I would be interested to see what that looks like. Because we, I think actually what's really brilliant about that quotation, Tom, is that I think right sort of made good on that. (laughs) And he did make architecture that conveyed an image of America, an image of property, an image of of, uh, even a a future of a a kind of vast infrastructure of, in in his view of the Broadacre City, of an infrastructure of housing uh, that would have its own kind of form and its own uh, transport and systems and its own modes of communication. But now I think we can think more globally. I think that's probably the imperative um, more so than producing an architecture of our own. So uh, I think that's I think that would be my only quibble with um, with right 
in that yeah. instance, there are others, of course, right, had yeah. many, many issues, <laughs> yeah. which we can note, uh, yeah. you know, uh, major problems with the, the other gender and so yeah. forth. So. <laughs> yeah. And Michael, Michael, this has uh, yeah. really been terrific. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you as our guest today, really. Thank you very much. Tom, it's been wonderful. I, I love talking about architecture, and I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to talk with you guys about it. Thank you very much, and we hope you consider coming back with us really soon in the near future. I, I hope it happens, yeah. We definitely Thanks, will. Thank you very much, Michael. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Michael Osman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA. Michael is also an author in Governing by Design, Architecture, Economy, and Politics in the 20th Century and a founding member of the Collaborative Aggregate. For more information, feel free to visit www.aud.ucla.edu. That's www.aud.ucla.edu. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZC Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Jaggi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diaro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kcsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.
Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.